0: Okay, now it's a five past ten. I think we should start and uh, uh, the rest of the audience will come in or we'll join in as we go. So um, welcome, everybody, for uh, attending another event for the Environment in Asia Research Series at Feldbank Center for Chinese Studies, Harvard University University. Um, Wonderful to see all of you online. Uh, my name is Ling Zhang. I am an environmental historian for China. I'm teaching at Boston College. And uh, as a researching associate for the Fairbank Center, I convened this research series. So it's wonderful to have you. Uh, before I uh, move on to introduce the panelists for today's discussion, um, I encourage you to continue follow um, following our research series. And uh, if you are interested, you can always find our future events from the website uh, of the Center. You can just Google Felbank Center for Chinese Studies plus events, so you can look. Um, you, you can you can find us. Uh, find us. So. Um, this event is the last event for this semester, but for next semester, in the spring semester 2022, we have many um, exciting um, events coming up. We will begin the events with a conversation with a Professor Brian Lender, uh, who is an environmental historian for early China. So we will have a conversation with him to talk about his recently published book, um, which is in titled The King's Harvest, a political c- ecology of China from the first farmers to the first e- empire. So um, it's very exciting. So we haven't uh, settled the final, uh, the exact date yet. So um, please uh, log on, uh, just uh, go on to Fellbank Center to look for our f- future events. I hope to see many of you there. So uh, without any delay, let me um, quickly introduce today's panelists. So we are very lucky to have a four wonderful scholars to join us to talk about their collaboration. Um, so I'm just going to give them, each of them, very, very brief introduction. So our four panelists include Professor Ashley Essary from um, Department of Political Science um, at University of Alberta. And also then the second Professor Joanna Lewis, the Distinguished Associate Professor of Energy and Environment and the Director of the Science, Technology and International Affairs Program at Georgetown University. Our third speaker is Professor Mary Alice Haddad. Um, the John E. Andrews, Professor of Government and a Chair and a Professor of East Asian Studies and a Professor of Environmental Studies at uh, Wellesley University. And then lastly, our friend, Professor Stephen Harrow, Professor Amaratus from the Department of Anthropology and a School of the Environmental and of Forest Sciences from University of Washington. So um, these are four distinguished scholars who have recently collaborated in a project which had led to the publication of a wonderful edited volume which is entitled Greening East Asia, the Rise of the Eco-Developmental State. So with Without further ado, I'm now gonna talk more about this wonderful book of which I just finished reading. I have learned a great deal. So I'm just gonna to turn to our panelists. They will tell you about their collaboration, introduce the concept of the eco-developmental state and many, many things more. So after their introduction, discussion, then we will uh, we will turn to the Q&A um, uh, section. So for our audience, if you have any thoughts, any comments, you can use the Q&A function to share your ideas with us. So we hope we can... Uh, we can uh, discuss or we can include your comments, uh, your questions as much as we can. So here we are, um, our four wonderful colleagues, and this is your um, uh, platform to um, educate us.
1: Thank you, uh, Dr. Zhang. I'll start off um, and talk about how this project um, came together and I'll also serve as kind of our internal uh, timekeeper. Uh, This project was inspired by time that I spent in Alberta's wild places. Uh, My province is famous for beautiful mountains, including those like um, in the national parks band from Jasper and for its expansive and biodiverse uh, rich prairies. But Alberta is also known for a large energy sector that emphasizes the production of oil and gas. Uh, the former primarily from bitumen or tar sands. And here in Alberta, small oil wells dot the prairies and natural gas extraction extends throughout the foothills of the mountains. Uh, and as an avid uh, hiker and outdoors person generally, um, I moved to Canada hoping to experience uh, North America's disappearing wilderness. And I was at first dismayed by trips to the Alberta bush. Um, And one of my department chairs said, you're looking for wilderness, there's no wilderness left, Um, or almost none. Uh, And I was finding that away from the urban centers and off the main highways, the impact of the energy and forestry sectors seemed nearly ubiquitous, including in the province's beautiful boreal forests. And it seemed almost as if the further that I went from cities, the more activity I saw on logging roads and at remote camps, extracting hydrocarbons. So as a scholar of East Asian politics, I was wondering on these outings whether North Americans had something to learn from East Asia, East Asians. East Asian countries had long impressed me with their history of rapid economic growth. Despite relatively few natural resources, East Asians also seem to know how to use their natural resources wisely. Uh, they used what they had and what they imported uh, efficiently. Uh, Due to high population densities, the environmental costs of post-war developmentalism um, that led to serious air and water pollution have been visible um, to many people uh, in East Asia. Whereas in Alberta by comparison, it's possible for Edmontonians and Calgarians to go about their lives making an occasional visit to a national park without really encountering the full extent of environmental devastation. In the two cities um, that I lived in for the longest period of time in East Asia, Taipei in the early nineteen nineties and Shanghai in the two thousands, uh, everyone could feel the effects of air pollution in their lungs and in their eyes. Uh, you couldn't see the hills ringing Taipei through brown gray smog. The air in the Shanghai uh, stadium seemed indistinguishable at times from a smoke filled uh, bar room, and it didn't matter what people's occupations were. Um, or what their political views were. People wanted something done about pollution. Uh, There was a sense of public urgency about making life sustainable for humans as well as other species. Whilst growing the economy um, prompted and this prompted a reflection uh, by a range of state and societal actors uh, whose interests were importantly often aligned. Uh, and this led to a gradual shift in priorities at local, national, and regional levels toward forms of development that were greener and cleaner for the environment. East Asian environmentalism uh, has dual significance for the future of the Earth. Uh, First, East Asia's environmental impact is arguably the world's largest. Uh, Addressing the region's environmental problems is crucial to building a sustainable future for the Earth as a whole, and second, East Asia having increased its affluence after much of Europe and North America, but before South Asia and parts of Latin America and most of Africa, can serve as an example for countries likely to increase resource consumption in coming decades. My problem as a scholar who wanted to launch this project was that I knew very little about environmental politics or environmentalism. I needed help, a lot of help. Fortunately, I had a hiking buddy uh, Steve Harrell, who knew lots about the environment and environmentalism in East Asia, the title of a 2016 conference I hosted in Banff. So I leaned heavily on Steve for suggestions of who we might invite to the conference. And perhaps because Banff is such an attractive location, it's almost as attractive as hosting a conference at Harvard, a number of luminaries agreed to attend, and I include uh, Joanna and Mary Alice in a number. Uh, in... And in hopes of generating some new insights, I wanted a really diverse group of participants. I had journalists who worked in post Fukushima Japan come speak. I had Taiwanese in, uh, environmental activists, South Korean nuclear scientists, anthropologists, sociologists, scholars of urban planning, and political scientists. And as you might expect, uh, the exchanges at the conference were heated at times, particularly between the activists and the nuclear scientists. Then the book's four editors, myself, Mary Alice Haddad, Joanna Lewis, and Steve Harrell, put our heads together uh, to begin to craft a conceptual framework. This is eco-developmentalism, about which Mary Alice will speak. Um, And this framework connected and explained the findings of some 20 eventual contributors uh, who would write about East Asia. This place where environmental protection is increasingly seen as requisite and sustainable development is associated with new opportunities. Taken as a whole, our book uh, has 15 chapters that highlight the ways in which governments, activists, and indigenous communities have attempted to ameliorate environmental challenges in China, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan. This book has five sections, uh, one on law and policy, local activism, local activism, another section, environmental NGOs and coalitions, another section, and then outcomes. So for this session, each of the book's editors has agreed to speak briefly on one or more of these sections. And Mary Alice Haddad is gonna talk about the book's organizing concept, that of the eco-developmental state. She's also gonna talk about local action. Joanna Lewis is gonna speak on law and policy, I'll talk about uh, environmental NGOs and advocacy, and uh, lastly, um, uh, Steve Harrell is going to relate some of these the outcomes of East Asian environmentalism. So, with that, I'm going to go on uh, to to you, Mary Alice.
2: Thanks, Ashley. Um, put my little timekeeper on here. Uh, I wanted to underscore that. Um, After leaving the Banff conference, I left feeling like every academic conference should be held in a place like Banff. It was a really extraordinary intellectual experience um, to kind of move between the normal academic panel in which people pontificate and there's debate about whatever to hikes with colleagues in which you talk about upcoming research and puzzles and forge uh, forge relationships that have now lasted um, almost 10 years. <laughs> kind of hard to believe that it's that long ago. Um, so I, it was really a great uh, experience. And Ashley did a terrific job of sort of talking about how the origin of this concept of eco-developmental state was really a grassroots organic one in which Uh, Ashley gathered together a whole bunch of scholars for the wide range of perspectives on environmental policy, politics, environmentalism, um, journalists, uh, advocates uh, and activists who just presented what they knew. Um, And then we all wrote a variety of chapters or a lot of people wrote chapters. And then the editors tried to say or try to find a thread that went through them. And one of the threads that we found was that um, what we do not see in East Asia is we do not see the shift from a sort of developmental state model to some kind of uh, green, crunchy or, you know, um, granola-eating model in which all sorts of worm fuzzy panda hugging folks are in charge. Uh, That's not what we've seen. We did not see uh, a takeover of green parties, which we've seen. And I mean, it hasn't taken over in Europe, but they certainly influence it. Uh, We also did not see big, large professional NGOs around um, environment sort of push policy in certain directions um, in East Asia. Rather, what we saw was this sort of broad historical trajectory which occurred in at, at different times in each of the uh four policies that we were talking about um but they all followed about the same path and the first one was super rapid industrial development uh, which was successful and led to wealth societal wealth and especially the growth of the middle class which meant that it also created a bunch of pollution. The combination of wealth and society and the pollution meant that citizens were no longer satisfied with just subsistence trying to live till the next day. And they started to pressure their governments. Interestingly, in East Asia, we see a diverse kind of governments that this pressure went against. So in Japan, this happened in the 50s and the 60s, and it was pressure against a democratic government And South Korea and Taiwan, this was pressure in the 80s and it was against military governments. And in China, it was pressure in the 90s and the early 2000s and up to the current uh, moment, uh, pressure against a sort of CCP authoritarian system. Um, And in spite of the different political systems that were ruling parties at the time, they all responded uh, in one way or another to this citizen pressure. They didn't respond by completely changing the way they did things. The way they responded was to make slight adjustments to the way uh, their pro business environmental state uh, policies, their uh, developmental state policies worked. Um, and they made those tweaks to shore up uh, environmental standards, to protect the health uh, of the people that were uh, citizens in their countries. Um, and also to protect and promote the business interests of the of the uh, companies that were operating in their um, in their territory. Uh, this also happened in a global market where we see all of the East Asian uh, countries are export oriented economies. at least that's how they some of them, especially China has shifted now. but at the time when they were doing their rapid growth, they were, looking very heavily at the uh, North American and uh, Western Europe markets. And when the environmental regulations and the markets changed, it became in the commercial interests of a lot of the East Asian countries to have stronger regulations because they were going to be trying to export to those markets anyway. So you saw an alignment in certain aspects of environmental policy that aligned very well with uh, commercial interests. Uh, next slide, please. Oh, Joanne, we need the next slide. Well, I'll just, uh, I'll move uh, forward and we'll get to it when we, um, when we have a chance so that what you see when you have a, uh, alignment of commercial interests and what we see in the developmental state, here we go. Um, is that, These eco-developmental states, which is what we're calling them, uh, do not perform equally well across all environmental policy areas. We see them performing exceptionally well in areas where commercial interests uh, and economic interests align with uh, environmental policies. In the policy areas where you see pro-environmental policy generating economic growth and economic profit, the East Asian uh, eco-developmental states do quite well. So you see them uh, doing very well in areas of renewable energy, green technology, green finance. You also see them do well when the state capacity is pretty high. So uh, forestry preservation um, where the state has a fairly high level of control and influence over that uh, sector. In contrast, you see these states doing quite poorly in the areas where those conditions do not exist or are much weaker. So when pro-environmental policy does not just, not generate profit, but actually costs a lot, uh, they do worse. When state capacity is low, we've seen um, probably everybody on this call has traveled to East Asia and we've saw Ashley's photos of the air pollution problem. Uh, air pollution is one of these areas where, especially increasingly, it's uh, caused by individual drivers running around cars. And it's a lot harder for the state to control that kind of behavior. Uh, so when the state capacity is lower, uh, it does worse. And finally, when whatever the ruling party is, whether it's a Democratic uh, party or not, when its incentive to act is low, uh, it's not that interested and not that incentivized to act. So if the Pollution problem, if the environmental problem, if the environmental policy issue is uh, affecting high status, uh, high income, and especially urban populations, there is much more attention by all of these governments on those issues. And if that, uh, if the problem is showing up among marginalized populations um, that are. Uh, pushed off, then they are much less uh, likely to be paying attention and doing much uh, to deal with the problem. So we see this particularly in environmental justice. Um, So I'm gonna take my remaining time to kind of highlight a few of my favorite stories from the the book. These, uh, my favorite part of this uh, edited volume are these uh, local initiative stories. I feel like a lot of this field covers Uh, national state and international politics, Um, but it's a lot harder for folks particularly that don't speak one of the uh, languages of East Asia to access these really cool uh, grassroots stories. So I'll just highlight a few of my favorite ones. Um, The chapter by Noriko Sakamoto talks about local energy initiatives in Japan. Um, And these are uh, post uh, 311, There was, we have a lot of problems in rural Japan in which uh, populations are going down. There's lots of old people. The farmers are losing their livelihoods. And so these local small scale renewable energy projects are solving many problems at once. They uh, create energy in areas that are often uh, underserved or off the grid. They can uh, help support uh, the energy needs of local small-scale businesses. They are funded by donations from the community and by folks that are interested in supporting the projects. Um, And they are, those uh, supporters then get gift baskets uh, that are locally produced produce. So it helps uh, mitigate a lot of uh, problems that the rural areas uh, are facing. Next slide. Another great uh, story um, comes from uh, uh, education programs. Uh, The chapter by Rob Effred talks about uh, nature um, uh, education in China and how many, many Chinese children are now suffering from like urban children everywhere, suffering from uh, nature deficit disorder. And it's just a lovely chapter that takes you into the uh, parks outside of Beijing with children climbing into trees and parents getting their hands dirty and folks exploring what it is like to be part of the natural world when they come from concrete jungles. Final slide, or final slide for me. (laughs) Uh, And the last uh, set of stories that I really enjoy uh, come from uh, Taiwan. Um, So the the chapter by Sasala Taiban et al. There are several uh, authors in this. Uh, talk about two, uh, a number of different things, but two in particular are programs that are reliant on the indigenous peoples uh, in Taiwan. And they've found ways to tap into uh, traditional knowledge networks to promote uh, environmental uh, conservation and also help uh, ecotourism, uh, uh, cultural conservation, um, environmental education, uh, and improve the actual material conditions of both the native people and the environment uh, the the area that they are part of. So all these stories, and I didn't cover them all from the uh, from these local action chapters, but they're a real treasure in this edited volume.
1: Thanks, Mary Alice. We'll go now to Joanna.
3: Great, thanks. Um, and it's, it's great to be here. Thanks everyone for joining. Um, I'm gonna pick up on the section of the book that talks about policy and law. So the four chapters that are in this section, um, a chapter I wrote on China's low carbon energy strategy, a chapter by In Lim on energy and climate change policies of Japan and South Korea, um, a chapter by Iza Ding on the politics of pollution emissions trading in China, Um, and a chapter by Simon Avanel on legal experts and environmental rights in Japan. Um, And for the purposes of our presentation today, I'm not going to try to go through all four chapters in detail, but I wanted to just pull out a few comparative themes, um, particularly focusing on the first three chapters, which really um, look at China, Japan and South Korea in a comparative perspective, Um, Particularly, all of them have a really, uh, you know, focus, um, you know, this is a book about environmentalism, right, but these chapters all tend to kind of hone in on energy in particular, um, and uh, the relationship of energy systems to climate policy and and how that informs climate policy, um, you know, implementation in these countries. Um, as well as, you know, how countries are positioning themselves with respect to international environmental diplomacy, um, and particularly in the case of the international climate change negotiations. Um, And then, you know, how that translates into how ambitious their climate pledges are that they set at the national level, and then how those pledges are viewed by other countries, you know, are these how these countries are viewed? Are they climate leaders? Are they are they followers or sort of more hesitant in this space? And so, you know, Japan, China, and South Korea provide a really interesting contrast here just to kind of run through each briefly. Um, You know, we see in Japan, of course, a a country that's still uh, very much fossil fuel dominant, um, and I I, I always like graphs and charts, so I put some statistics at the bottom for you all just to have the, the numbers in, in context. Um, so heavily reliant on, on petroleum and coal. And, you know, the decarbonization strategy really focused on um, energy conservation. This has been a real flagship um, initiative of Japan. And, um, of course, nuclear, although, you know, there was a bit of a pause during the um, the, the Fukushima disaster, but really, you know, have, have gone, gone back to uh, promoting nuclear full force since then, uh, and some renewables development, although not as much as you might expect. Um, you know, Japan, of course, really began as a big player in climate diplomacy back with the Kyoto Protocol in the late 90s and um, really taking stewardship of, of the international climate process, but have since stepped back a bit. Um, Japan has uh, adopted strong climate policies. Um, Japan is the only sort of we call industrialized country or, you know, formerly Annex One country of these three uh, countries in this region, but um, has fallen short of pledge goals, and, um, at least until recently. And so we've seen somewhat of a reduction in ambition. South Korea, in contrast, you know, there's some similarities with Japan, you know, again, fossil fuel dominant, again, reliant on imported energy. Um, and, but the decarbonization strategy has been primarily focused on energy efficiency, um, this is talked about quite a bit in the, in the Lim chapter, um, you know, you see an increased focus there on renewables uh, as well as um, on natural gas. Um, and, you know, while there is a lot of reliance on nuclear, on nuclear um, you know, more of a um, uh, they've been making more of a push to diversify away from nuclear in, in response to in part to public concerns. Um, And South Korea is interesting, you know, when it comes to climate policy and international climate negotiations, because it actually falls into a unique category in that, you know, it was classified um, under the UNFCCC as a developing country, but of course it's an OECD country, so sort of tries to walk this line as a developing country, but also, you know, as an OECD member, you know, trying to be proactive in, in climate policy, um, you know, even with the challenges of it, if it doing so because of its still fossil fuel dominance, and so um, again, has adopted strong policies but has fallen short of many of its goals. Um, and then of course, turning to China, uh, you know a well studied story, and where my work focuses on you know china's own low carbon transition, um, you know we really see the story of coal dominance presenting a technical and a political economy challenge to china 's decarbonization. Um, uh, I was actually on a US-China dialogue last night, you know, focused specifically on like just transition for the coal industries. You know, this is a huge issue, you know, of course in the United States, but even more so in China where it's such a big employer, such a big uh, economic driver within the country. Um, And of course, you know, we've seen really over the last several decades, significant evolution in how China's positioned Uh, itself in the international climate negotiations, as its role has become more central, it's of course become more in the global spotlight, uh, as it rose to become the largest uh, national emitter in the world. Um, And so while it used to be, you know, somewhat of a obstructionist um, player in these negotiations now really tries to at least be viewed as a leader. You know, we see alliances with the United States, you know, the joint declaration that came out um, in Glasgow a couple weeks ago. And, and of course, the, leading up to the Paris Agreement. Um, and, you know, when you look at the details of, of what China's doing at the domestic level, Um, You know, you see climate goals that are relatively modest in this in this decade in particular. And, you know, while there I should mention all three of these countries have set mid century carbon neutrality goals, um, South Korea and Japan for 2050 and, and China for 2060. Um, which is really quite ambitious for all of these countries, you know, to be signaling they're moving in that direction. But, um, you know, it's if you look at the numbers, we need to see more ambitious goals from China this decade in order to get on that path. Um, you know, the chapters um, by um Dr. Ding talks about the really complex center local policy dynamics, as illustrated specifically through the case of emissions trading and how that's involved in China from, um, you know, specifically being focused on criteria air pollutants. And now, of course, to China launching the largest national cap and trade system for carbon dioxide in the world um, and and what that really means and how much substance there is to it. This is a really interesting, critical chapter of that. Um, system, uh, and really, I think, highlights the tensions that we see in China with implementing international best practices like carbon markets in a non-market economy, you know, with all sorts of inefficiencies and and trying to patch that together. Um, So, you know, uh, just to kind of pull out some of the eco-developmental state themes we see here in comparative perspective and kind of, you know, modern day China, Japan, South Korean uh, climate policy, You know, all have really experienced this fundamental shift towards um, sustainability essential to development, Um, although with different priorities, you know, driving this because of domestic differences and and challenges, you know, huge diversity, of of course, in this part of the world and governance structures, policy formulations, as well as technical challenges Uh, to environmental protection and decarbonization, you know, really rooted in all countries on their continued reliance, both on fossil fuels and on on industry. Um, You know, these are all countries that still are big exporters, play a big role in global trade. And so the shift has impact, um, you know, what they do domestically has impact beyond just the region itself, you know, beyond just domestic policy goals, um, because these countries play such a significant role in global trade and investment. And I think, you know, one really, a uh, tangible example of this was um, where we saw, I think, regional pressures really leading to um, in this case a race to the top, um, you know, first in energy efficiency where many of the lessons learned in Japan were transferred to China um, and throughout the industrial sector, but also now um, with the recent overseas coal investment ban, where we saw Japan come forward, then South Korea, and then China, uh, when President Xi announced that China would stop financing overseas coal plants at the UN General Assembly this past fall. um, you know I, I will stop there, but um, uh, I think it's you know it's uh, it's an interesting section of the book that focuses you know more on the high level governance structures than the the local um, which um, I think is a is a complementary perspective to to the, the cases that you'll hear about from Mary Allison and from Ashley. Great
1: um, now um, I'm gonna. Uh... Talk about the fourth section of the book. And it relates to environmental NGOs and other forms of social organization. Uh, and this section includes a chapter by sociologist Hua Mei on environmentalism in Kaohsiung, which is Taiwan's largest uh, city in the south, uh, a chapter by uh, Paiwan, not Taiwan, Paiwan, uh, anthropologist Lunglong Man uh, Ron on indigenous attitudes toward nuclear waste, and a chapter by uh, Eve Taburgian, a political scientist about the battle over GMO foods in South Korea and Japan, and a chapter by two sociologists, uh, Jing Yun Dai and Anthony Spires, about grassroots NGOs and environmental advocacy in China. Um, <clears throat> I'll talk first about the Huamei Cho uh, chapter, Uh, in Kaohsiung. Uh, A city of about three million people, Kaohsiung has long been a hub for manufacturing and shipping. It's notorious in Taiwan for poor water quality and air pollution. It has the most contaminated industrial sites and CO2 emissions per capita. Uh, Average life expectancy in Kaohsiung is over four years shorter than in Taipei. Yet as Mei documents, Uh, the city has experienced a rise in environmental activism. And this occurred first in the form of NIMBY-type protests or what she calls self-help protests, beginning in the 1980s. And these related to such concerns as the dumping of chemical or nuclear waste, advocacy of recycling. Uh, And then the second phase uh, was the emergence in the 1990s of urban conservation activism. And this reflected a desire among members of the middle class for more urban green space and the protection of wildlife and biodiversity. A third phase that she documents, um, beginning in the late 1990s, occurred when middle-class concerns over industrial accidents and the large industrial footprint in the area um, led to collaboration between the conservationists and the community activists. And then the final phase that she looks at from the late 2000s to the present, sees a convergence take place between urban environmentalism and community-based activism uh, in the activities of such organizations as uh, Citizen of the Earth, Dichokomi, an organization that she has close ties to. And this was an organization founded by lawyers and scholars, and it's funded entirely by public donations. Um, as of 2017, uh, this organization had something like 20 employees, Uh, and it works with members of uh, the community who are concerned with pollution that affects agriculture and aquaculture. It launches media campaigns, it lobbies local and national politicians. This is an organization with multiple offices in Taiwan and it conducts um, scientific studies on pollution and its economic uh, impact. Next slide. Um, All countries um, that utilize nuclear power have a problem. Uh, What do you do with the waste? Uh, The chapter by Lang Langman Ronyao examines attitudes in two Taiwanese indigenous communities toward the storage of nuclear waste. In one instance, uh, the government energy monopoly, known in English as Tai Power uh, or Tai Dian, uh, secretly stored nuclear waste on Orchid Island or Lanyu, going back to the 1980s. The Tao people there are resolutely opposed to the continued storage of nuclear waste, and they have mobilized a cohesive leadership, island churches, and impressive local and national media power to support their cause. Uh, in the other instance, um, there is a, a village known as Nantian um, uh, 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 of Taiwan people, and it is relatively supportive of the storage of nuclear waste. So the, the, the puzzle that uh, Long Man is addressing is, is why this difference because the difference in attitudes is, is so stark. Our resistance to nuclear power in Lianyu, uh has grown, particularly after the uh, 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster um, that led to uh, such widespread concern across Taiwan. Um, and eventually, um, President Tsai Ing-wen would apologize in 2016 uh, for the continued storage of waste on Lanyu. Um, Going to the village of Nantian and the the Paiwan people there, uh, proposals to store nuclear waste on a nearby mountaintop have been linked to a compensation fund that's seen as particularly attractive in a community that is weakened by what Leng 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 calls welfare colonialism and a reliance on government handouts the community the community's cohesion has been weakened by government resettlement initiatives going back to the Japanese period and hollowed out by the departure of younger uh, generations to work in cities. Uh, meanwhile, money from uh, elsewhere in Taiwan has arrived and, you know, funded such things as shrimp farming. Uh, Long Long man uh, also sees the influence of Han culture as having diminished traditional connections to the land through traditional farming and hunting, uh, with a loss of a traditional relationship to the land among Nantan villagers and a sense of a loss of autonomy over land use, uh, leading them to feel like there's no reason to object to the storage of nuclear waste in their area. Um, uh, the next chapter I'll talk about is by Yves um, Bergian concerning uh, the battle over GMOs in Korea and Japan. He's examining um, public resistance to genetically modified uh, organisms here. Uh, and while the bio, uh, biotech uh, industry had the first mover advantage over information, uh, and this helped it to shape Uh, um, subsequent policy by pro-science and pro-trade governments in Japan and and Korea to regulate GMO products in a way that was pretty much similar to how other crops were regulated. Um, This situation changed greatly in the late 1990s and early 2000s. The first thing that happened was the European Union began to develop strict uh, new regulations and then Japan, Korea, and even China uh, adopted rules uh, and laws that required mandatory labeling, environmental assessments, tough guidelines on new proposals, and placed restrictions on uh, on uh, new experimental tests uh, of GMOs in open fields. So the puzzle that Taburgian addresses in this chapter is thus why two democratic and formally de- developmental states chose to introduce costly barriers to trade and industrial development. And in answering this question, He argues that we can't ignore the role of civil society as what he calls a conditional catalyst for change. In both Korea and Japan, NGOs challenge the legitimacy of existing policy networks by uh, reframing debates, creating linkages um, between local governments and urban policy entrepreneurs who, Eve argues, both use the issue to increase their influence. And NGOs use international platforms by importing norms and examples of political mobilization from Europe. Uh, Next slide. Uh, The chapter by Jingyi Dai and Anthony Spires, uh, called Grassroots NGOs and Environmental Advocacy in China, uh, looks at the strategies pursued by relatively low profile NGOs in Guangdong province. And these include such things as the cultivation of a stable, interactive relationship with government, uh, the use of state channels uh, for communication, careful selection of frames, to articulate concerns and preferred goals and obtaining media exposure to generate societal support and to pressure the state. Uh, The authors note that uh, at times these three different strategies are used simultaneously. Um, The project draws on interviews done with eight registered organizations in Shenzhen and Guangzhou. And it's clear from the accounts of NGO activists that street mobilization, a la that practiced in Taiwan, Japan, or Korea, is essentially off the table. Rather, um, the activism that is pursued is... Cautious, piecemeal, and limited to environmental issues strictly. They don't go beyond environmental issues uh, in a context in which the state remains both the main agenda setter and final decision maker. Um, some observations about um, this section uh, taken together. Uh, The chapters highlight the salience of social organizations in environmentalism and the advantages of cultivating a working relationship with a government, whether it's a local government or national government. Perhaps more important, though, has been the ability of activists in Korea, Japan, and Taiwan to connect to other organizations through loose coalitions of citizens, thereby retaining grassroots legitimacy and benefiting from mature activist repertoires, and uh, the resources of professional activists. The cases of Japan, Taiwan, and Korea uh, also help us understand why NGOs in China are weaker by comparison. In China under Xi, uh, NGOs operate in a highly circumscribed space and are fearful of repression. It's noteworthy that DIA Inspires draw on anonymous interviews from NGOs to write their chapter, whereas the information for the other chapters comes from on the record interviews, participant observation, and publicly available information. In the democratic East Asian polities, environmentalists can engage broad swaths of society on a range of issues, whereas in China, its actions might be perceived as a threat to national security and the CCP's hold on power. Also due in part to a defensive turn in Chinese nationalism um, that is responding to the country's deteriorating image in the developed world. Uh, and perhaps the Chinese uh, 2016 uh, overseas um, uh, management law, uh, international resources, whether these are information norms or capital are less accessible in China. And lastly, media power, which is crucial to activists in all of these chapters, uh, can be more flexibly and readily utilized in democracies. And this allows NGOs there to more directly influence narratives and to rally the public to pressure the government for change. All right, I'll stop here and we'll go on to Steve with outcomes.
4: Oh, thank you. Uh, I'm just so happy to be part of this outstanding series that Ling has uh, organized, and um, I'm really looking forward to uh, the next one, uh, presumably in January, Brian Lander's book, which I just got in the mail, so I haven't read yet, Uh, but it looks wonderful. Um, Yes, outcomes. Uh, How does all this all work? And, um, and my role in a conference was to sort of be a sort of elder statesman who's too old to really do any research, you know, so I have to kind of summarize everybody else's. And um, so I came upon this concept of the environmental Kuznets curve, which was developed by some Greek economists in the, in the early 1990s to explain the trajectory of development and environment uh, anywhere. And uh, it's named after Simon Kuznets, I have to have a um, homage to Harvard here a little bit, a Nobel Prize winning uh, Harvard economist who um, talked about the, uh, the curve where uh, in, in the process of development, uh, inequality gets worse and then it gets better. And it turned out not to be right, but um, these environmentalists uh, did a parallel thing and uh, said that, well, in the process of development, Uh, First, we have uh, the dark satanic mills, and then we have, uh, you know, the return to England's green Jerusalem. And um, we, uh, how can, how well can we adapt this to this idea to the developmental trajectory of anywhere in the world, but uh, in this case, of course, East Asia. So next slide. The, um, and I started thinking about this. OK, why is it that uh, we see uh, a first a worsening and then a partial a return to better conditions uh, in a process of development? And so I, I was thinking about uh, some drivers of this. Uh, you go In energy, you go from low use in the traditional agrarian society to increasing but inefficient use to more efficient use. Um, Pollution abatement is unnecessary, uh, really, in a traditional agrarian society. Uh, In the early stages of industrialization, it's unavailable or either you don't have the technologies or they're too expensive. And uh, the technologies become more uh, affordable and and available as we move uh, to, uh, to, to a wealthy country state mobilization. Uh, traditional states, uh, as we know from Ling's work, uh, they mobilize for certain things uh, that have to do with the environment, like controlling the Yellow River, but they don't uh, necessarily mobilize for a pollution abatement or abatement of the environmental damages that come from agriculture. Uh, and, and they don't mobilize at all when they're totally concentrated on on developing, and then, of course, they're going to increase it for the reasons that that Mary Alice and Ashley have uh, outlined uh, in, in the first parts of this talk. And and then there's citizen pressure, um, as uh, all of our other presenters have talked about. There's, there's no, it's, it's not a concept, not a thing, in an agrarian empire, uh, and it's low in the early stages of and in, and in, in, of uh, industrialization. Partly because uh, citizens are glad to have uh, rising material standards of living, and, uh, and and partly because they're unable to organize. And, and it gets higher and higher as you go along. And then finally, at the bottom, we have uh, offshoring externalities. That is to say, the wealthier a country, uh, the more it can export its uh, environmental damage, as, uh, as we've seen uh, China, for example, trashing the whole Congo uh, for cobalt to make uh, batteries for electric vehicles. Okay, next slide. Uh, so I decided, well, it seems apparent that there are certain aspects of environmental change or environmental degradation that are easier to remediate than others that tend to follow this environmental Kuznets curve pretty closely. And there are other places where it simply doesn't work. Things just continue to get worse. And so I started looking at certain factors in that would characterize these different aspects of environmental change. And one of the factors I, I can't, say them all here, don't have time, but one of the factors is uh, what I call the biophysical time to reversal. In other words, air pollution, you you get rid of air pollution in a couple of days. You just have to stop the cars, stop the factories, uh, stop the barbecues uh, in Beijing in the summer. And uh, within days, the air clears out. We saw this in 2008 Olympics. We see it every year in in China for the Lianghui, uh, the uh, government uh, uh, symbolic uh, legislative meetings. Uh, water pollution takes a little bit longer. Deforestation takes decades to centuries. And we go on down the list and we see the climate change, uh, you know, the climate will cool again, right? You know, climate scientists can tell us four, five, 6,000 years and we back to where we are now. And biodiversity loss, of course, uh, yes, we have a great extinction and a few tens of million years later then uh, other species come to replace it. So we have this, these very different timescales. Okay, next slide. Um, and, and so uh, another factor is how noticeable they are. Air pollution, is, as, as um, Mary Ellis talked about in, in her early talk here, uh, everybody can see it. You walk out the door, Taipei, Beijing, Tokyo, Seoul, wherever, and uh, you know, you can't breathe. Uh, climate change is totally unnoticeable. This is why people could say it was a hoax. Nobody has ever said that water pollution is a hoax. But climate change is a hoax and you can get away with this among certain populations because you don't notice climate change uh, uh, as much and and you can attribute it to, to other causes. And these other aspects of the environment are in between. Okay, next slide. So I added up a bunch of different factors, which included uh, the uh, uh, all the different drivers that I had in, in the second slide there, and uh, came across with this EKC susceptibility index. To what extent can we expect a particular aspect of environmental degradation to be remediable through the process, through the trajectory, that is the central concept of this book, from development to eco-developmental. And you can see that again, air pollution is a very low index. It means it's, it's, uh, it's, it's easy to remediate, uh, relatively easy. Deforestation is in the middle. And of course, something like groundwater depletion uh, is, is very difficult. We would not expect uh, groundwater to be restored, water tables to come up again after they've been depleted for agriculture and industrial development and so forth. And in fact, worldwide we see this, you know, no places restoring their aquifers. A lot of places are cleaning their air. So let's go to um, some some examples here. Um, and I'm gonna to talk totally about uh, two things that often get conflated, but they're very separate. One is air pollution, which is at the top of the list. And the other one is uh, climate change, uh, which is at the bottom of the list. And uh, we're fortunate that the Ministry of Ecology and Environment in China has posted the ratings for six or seven different pollutants every single day in 200 cities since December 2013. This is an incredible data set. Now, how accurate it is, I have no scientific expertise to know, but it's probably pretty accurate. And if you look at the uh, example here, uh, take air pollution and ask the question, uh, does it follow this environmental Kuznets curve? Um, and yeah, so i um, because i don 't have infinite time or infinite research assistance being retired, I decided I would pick eight cities out of the two hundred and some they 're all large cities and they 're representative of different uh, different uh, characteristics of urbanization and look at what uh, it was like in january uh, two thousand and fourteen and January two thousand and twenty. Uh, now, this is a, you have to take my word for it. I didn't cherry pick these data, but, I, but you could have picked a different year, a different month, and you would have found uh, something very similar as I did. Uh, and I took the air quality index, uh, the ma- that is to say the average for the month, the air quality maximum, that is to say the worst, the highest number uh, during the month of January pm2.5 which is uh, we all know is the uh, is the uh, primary pollutant uh, sulfur dioxide uh, oxides of nitrogen and uh, and ozone and ozone in fact it tends to be higher in the summer than in the winter so instead of january the ozone figures are for july uh, of each year and down uh, at the bottom you have the 2020 figures and, and you notice that uh, a couple of things uh, one thing is that um, sulfur dioxide they solved it. How did they solve it? Uh, they int- introduced a, a series of increasingly tight standards for sulfur content of gasoline and uh, enforced this with the refiners. That's all I had to do. Really, really easy. Uh, you look at ozone, hmm, no place except perhaps Nanjing, and you know that was, had to do with the arbitrary place where I drew the line between the green and yellow, but uh, ozone has not improved. And, of course, the uh, ozone is because of the um, of, uh, uh, cars, right? And so, um, and, and the other interesting thing, of course, is the Rumchi, uh, which is the capital of Xinjiang, uh, Uyghur Autonomous Region, uh, has not improved anything except uh, sulfur dioxide. But you can see, in general, um, that air pollution is remediable and, and uh, follows the trajectory of eco-developmentalism. Last slide. Now, uh, oh, this is what I call the green development um, paradox, and I'm shamelessly poaching on Joanna's chapter here. Uh, but um, if we think about climate change, uh, if we look at, uh, at, the, at the graph on the left, the energy intensity in China between 1980 and uh, 2017 uh, has uh, decreased by about a factor of four. Uh, This is green development in a sense It takes one hell of a lot less um, energy, and in China, of course, it's mostly coal-powered energy and hydro, uh, to uh, produce the same amount of product. However, at the same time, total energy consumption goes up, and that's simply because China has grown so fast. The economy is about 30 times the size it was in, in, in 1980. So even as you green your development, it's still development, and that means a lot more energy. And then finally, the last slide um, shows the trajectories of, uh, of greenhouse gas uh, emissions in China and Japan. Uh, Japan has managed to actually start to bring it down. This may be because it's further along, uh, whereas uh, China's uh, proposing uh, uh, Tanzonghe, right, uh, carbon neutrality by 2060, um, and uh, that clearly is not enough. So what we're saying is that this trajectory of developmentalism to eco-developmentalism, or as represented by the environmental Kuznets curve, works for some things, uh, but it doesn't work for other things. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank all four of you for um, such rich information and a really structured way to introduce your collective collective <laughs> collaborative project and especially on behalf of your colleagues So um, I learned a great deal so I can um I have so many questions to ask you I can ask you about how you uh, can talk more about the historical trajectory the transition from the developmental state to the eco-developmental state so speaking as a historian right we pay attention to these historical change what's um I can ask you about the question, why, um, uh, how do you define East Asia and choose East Asia as analytical unit while paying attention to internal complexities? For instance, Mary Alice, even uh, you are repeatedly talking about, yeah, political systems were different, right? And I can ask you about the question, for instance, like a local initiative actually ran into all kinds of conflicts. Like uh, Ashley, you mentioned all these cases with uh, the state initiative. We can go into, uh, Joanna, you you mentioned these state policies and. State agendas actually in many cases the state was so lagging behind right china use your language it's such a reluctant leader on the global arena so there are so many questions i can ask you i can ask you about how you collaborate but i wanted to keep as many uh, much time to our audience so audience please if you have questions and now it's it's the time for you to formulate your question to share your comments please use the q a uh, function of the uh, this webinar Ebenom. And I noticed that there are quite some audience, actually viewers are uh, currently uh, on YouTube, right? Uh, watching the um, uh, YouTube streaming of the event. So, but if you are there, you cannot really ask questions. So you may want to switch to webinar or ask your colleague friends to uh, send your question and comments over. So I, I will give you a minute to, uh, to 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 send some question over, but I've already seen some here, but I will take a chance just to ask one question that is actually follow up with Steve's outcome and actually pay attention to the last message, in the last page of your book, in which Steve talked about so what? So what's the what well, do we look forward to, right? What's the future? And uh, if I can quickly mention, uh, bring up this last paragraph uh, at the end of the book, right? The, out- uh, the outlook is a far from, quote unquote, far from hopeless if we move uh, faster. They combine the combined effects of the rise of a popular environmental consciousness and the eventual emergence of the eco in the eco-environmental state, which are described in this volume, allow us to hope, let's hear this message, that by 2040 or so, Beijing, Shanghai, and Chengdu will follow the examples of Tokyo and Taipei, that rivers and lakes all over the East Asian region will be clean. And then that most of East Asia's forests will be flourishing and sustainable. So this is a kind of more hopeful message, right? So, so I would like just put this back to you and ask all of you to reflect on after doing this project. So what, 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 what are we talking about here? What's, um, what's your personal scholarly assessment? Um, um, yeah, just tell us about how East Asia will be like. I know, a historian, we shouldn't do any prediction business, but uh, I would like to hear that. I hope, I think our audience would like to hear something from you too.
4: Well, maybe I should say something since that was since I wrote that sentence. Uh, and um, I, I think it comes back to to what I said in the talk. Um, I didn't talk about for forestry today, even though I spent the last five years uh, in the forestry school at UW. Uh, just in the interest of time, but uh, deforestation is the other thing that's easy to fix uh, with regard to relatively easy to fix with regard to uh, environment, and I'm sort of taking the you know examples of other countries. Uh, that are farther along in this trajectory, and, and the fact that you know Germany is restoring its forests. U.S. forests have problems because of fires, uh, but there are more forests in the U.S. a lot more than there were in the late 19th century, as Professor Worcester could tell us. And um, I see him on the Q and A here, and um, so that um, and, and and L.A. I grew up in L.A. The, the air in L.A. when I grew up was way worse than Beijing and, uh, at the time of the air apocalypses. Now it's not great, but, you know, you can breathe it. You can go downtown and your eyes don't water. So um, this, this is why. But, but I have to qualify this by saying this is only certain aspects of the environment. Climate change is going to get worse. Uh, you know, it's already in the flywheel in the system. And so that's not going to uh, we could stop it eventually, but we can't uh, we can't send it back.
3: Um, maybe I would just add briefly um, to what Steve said. I mean people always ask me you know how when you work in China, sort of how, how do you sort of stay positive you know seeing the extent of the environmental uh, challenges there, you know, and uh, my response is really just that while there are there are still really significant challenges to you know be addressed, no no question, uh, the change that we've been able to witness in a very short amount of time is really quite dramatic. I mean, just the the rapid um, you know pace at which China has been able to in- introduce renewable energy, for example, you know when. I started working in China about 20 years ago. And, and, you know, as a grad student, went to China to study renewable energy and, and got laughed at, you know, got laughed out of the room by most government officials who said China will never do renewable energy. And, you know, now they are by far the dominant country in in deploying this technology, have done so at scale, albeit with some, you know, some, some challenges and issues. But I mean, I, I just think this shows that, there are um, things that can be done, particularly in this part of the world that, you know, where you have the, the real technological prowess and sophistication, you know, and, and we see this in the innovation space and, and just really, you know, interesting examples, I mean, across um, China, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, you know, because of the, the real investments in technology, you know, that things can be scaled up very quickly if the government chooses to.
2: I'd like to add uh, one more piece on this, which is um, one of the things that I found the most interesting and where sort of my own research is going is uh, not at the national or international level, but rather at the municipal level. I see a lot of the biggest, most impactful, most far reaching actions happening uh, by cities, big cities, small cities. Um, and uh, there's a question by Peter Perdue in the, in the Q&A around uh, international folk, uh, forces versus domestic forces. And one of the things that I find really fascinating is that these municipal forces are now international because you have organizations like mm-hmm. C40 and others, ECLAY and others where the big cities are making really big changes and they don't get quite as caught up in the various partisan politics or nationalist politics uh, that the national governments or national parties have to deal with uh, because they're not, they can't deny climate change. I mean, there's like, you can deny climate change all you want, but like my streets are flooding. So like call it what you want, I gotta deal with flooding in my streets. And that's true whether you're in Buenos Aires or, or Shanghai or Hong Kong or, or New York. Um, And so I see a lot of positive, uh, really exceptional action at the municipal and transnational uh, levels. Uh, And so I'm really interested to see how that moves out. It doesn't mean that we don't still need to move as fast as we possibly can, Um, but I see a lot of uh, positive action there, uh, not just in East Asia, but around the world.
1: I'll just say a couple of things because the remarks made by others have been really, uh, really great. Uh, uh, One, one comment about political systems Uh, In doing this project, I was really surprised um, by the extent to which there wasn't that much um, difference um, between the, the, the outcomes of these very different political systems. I think you can kind of group the democracies in one, one category and China in a different category, but as Steve, I think, you know, convincingly points out you're seeing similar sorts of things happen across all of these polities, and that was really surprising. And, and isn't the sort of thing that someone trained as a comparative, you know, political scientist like me, you know, would would necessarily expect to find. It was it was uh, counterintuitive. Uh, another really interesting thing um, is to see how incentives have been mobilized um, to to get. Um, you know, firms and government uh, um, working together, you know, for renewable energy uh, projects, um, whether in, in China or in Taiwan, um, um, where, you know, I've been looking at uh, renewable energy policy uh, a little bit. Um, and, and yes, this is, uh, this is a wonderful, opt- uh, you know, uh, optimistic story uh, to tell. And I think that's part of the reason why I was so excited to be a, uh, a part of this project for me, um, you know, having been to uh, China and Taiwan a lot. Uh, over the last couple of decades, you, you really see in, in a place like Taiwan, um, uh, a, you know, a transformation of uh, the way that people see their physical environment. A, a growing concern with biodiversity that uh, has become uh, persuasive, pervasive in in popular culture, uh, and 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 a sense that there there are lots of ways for citizens to get involved in, um, you know, in protection of. The Formosa black bear or um, that since you know the recently rediscovered uh, cloud leopard um, and uh, indigenous knowledge is also um, being mobilized in 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 really uh, important ways in Taiwan too as part of um, uh, n- you know reimagining uh, Taiwan's national identity. Um, and And just briefly to uh, the the international question uh, raised by uh, Professor Purdue. Um, I, I have the sense that, um, that, you know, China is becoming uh, uh, more nationalistic and less internationalistic and less internationalist. And, and this uh, means that it's harder uh, for uh, international, uh, resources, information, um, uh, norms to flow to China, uh, in ways that they have flowed to the other polities that we look at in East Asia. And I think that's going to slow, um, the ability of the public to continue to have a, a voice in, um, in, you know, environmental, uh, issues, but I don't, I don't, you know, I, as I think that, you know, this book shows, uh, it's, uh, environmentalism in China takes many different um, forms, state-backed and you know bottom-up from society. So uh, you know, regardless of 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 the you know obstacles in the in the way of um, you know international inputs um, flowing to China, I, I think we're going to see the kind of eco-developmentalism, uh, you know, Chinese style, um, take place that has been so inspiring in um, you know in the last couple of decades.
0: Great, thank you so much for uh, all these insights. So we are gonna turn to the Q&A's a question comments sent by our uh, audience. And uh, since the two of you have already invoked the name of a Peter Purdue, I think we should go to Peter's question first because our audience cannot really see the question. So I'm gonna read out the question. So uh, Ashley, uh, Mary Alice, you um, already um, mentioned, touched upon this question. Uh, so if uh, Joanna, if you have anything to say, we can quickly look at Peter's question and also since Steve call out Professor Donald Wolster's name so we will then go to Wolster's question next. Then we will um, uh, um, cover all the other questions. So uh, Peter Purdue from uh, Yale University asked the question, you focus primarily on domestic forces for environmentalism, um, but you also mentioned international effects, the need for export markets, participation in global organization, etc. How and when does em- uh, international environmental change of attitude cause domestic change? Is the PRC becoming more internationalist or more nationalistic on environmental issues? To this, uh, Ashley um, just gave his. Uh, 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 response and I just wonder if a four of you have any little bit to to add to Ashley's answer.
4: I think we're all good with it.
0: Fantastic answer, Ashley, thank you. <laughs> Let's move to uh, the other name that Steve invoked, Professor Donna Worster, um, Eminent Environmental Historian for World Environment History and uh, US Environmental History. Um, He says, um, uh, great topic and impressive experts. I want to get your book, great news. (laughs) Do you discuss in the book um, something I regard as a highly interesting, if not profoundly, if not profound emerging in China at the highest level, the uh, the vision of a quote unquote ecological civilization, which has been made a part of China's uh, constitution. We can dismiss it as rhetoric but it seems to be having a policy impact in terms of pollution, abatement, soil protection, uh, wildlands, and endangered species. But so far, nothing on the question of a population policy, population policy as a part of eco-civilization. Can any of you give us uh, the views on China's ecological civilization initiative?
4: Oh, the, I've uh, thank you, Professor Worster. I've actually written about this uh, uh, in the chapter of uh, what I hope will be a forthcoming book, and um, I, I think I, I try to boil down a complex answer into short enough that we have time to talk about something else, also. But uh, I, it's, I think rhetoric is important in a sense that ecological civilization is an attempt to reconcile. The eco in eco developmentalism with the compulsory Marxist historical teleology that must be part of all general historical arguments in a communist ruled state. And so ecological civilization becomes a stage in uh, Marx, Lenin, Stalin, Mao. Uh, historical teleology following agrarian civilization and industrial civilization. Then we have ecological civilization. And given the Marxist uh, idea of the primacy of of the substructure, uh, the ecological civilization goes along with advanced socialism, just as industrial civilization went along with Uh, early capitalism and early socialism. And so, in other words, how can you be environmentalist and Leninist at the same time? Uh, It's by fitting the um, environmental mediation and and environmental sustainability into what is not questionable in the uh, uh, current political circumstances of China which is that we're moving toward a socialist communist uh, uh, industrialist future where you can hunt in the morning fish in the afternoon and so forth so um, I, I think that's why that's why ecological civilization but it's not it's it's rhetoric but it's not empty rhetoric because it does go along with concrete efforts to do the things that you mentioned in the question that is to address uh, pollution soil, uh, wild lands, uh, endangered species, and so forth. So that's where it comes from. Um, the other part of your question is about population. And uh, I think there's no in, there's no coherent population policy in China. If we look at, uh, since the founding of the People's Republic, extremely pro-natalist under Mao. You know, right? More people, more strength. And, um, and, and encouraging, and, and very, very high birth rates, uh, you know, uh, combined with uh, low death rates because of very good uh, public health, which communists are always good at, that um, uh, led, led to a uh, huge population explosion. And then we go back the other way, one child per family, forced abortions, you know, uh, uh, nobody has a brother or sister. I mean, a few people do, but, but anyway, and now, They're worrying their tails off about the fact that we don't have any more people. Uh, We're going to have all sorts of old people. So it's completely incoherent. Uh, And and it shifts back and forth in in, in a kind of, uh, you know, um, not random, but extreme way. And I think the reason why population policy hasn't come under this ecological civilization yet, I haven't seen it, maybe some people are dealing with it, is because nobody can figure out a coherent way to put it in given a population policy has gone from extremely pro-natalist to extremely uh, anti-natalist back to extremely pro-natalist.
0: Any of you would like to add to uh, this particular question, ecological civilization? No. Okay. I can tell that we have many more questions coming up, so, and we have a precious so 13 minutes left. So let's try to rush to other questions and try to talk about them as, uh, as much as possible. So the next question comes from Chris Nielsen. If uh, this is the Chris that I know, um, then this is uh, Chris Nielsen, um, the executive director of Harvard China Projects on Energy, em- uh, Economy, and Environment. So if this is a Chris that I know, Chris says, in comparing countries' environmental path, it's important to recognize how much cross fertilization has happened, how they have been influenced by experience of countries that have reduced the environmental harms before them, and importantly, to what extent that learning is the result of international policy. A positive example is air quality process uh, progress, in which China, uh, Taiwan, South Korea, China engage intensively and purposefully with policy actors and scientific communities from U.S., EU, and Japan to speed their progr- uh, progress. Comparing um, the uh, the Kuznets curve in this case, a negative example might be carbon trading, in which China was influenced by EU and um, U.S. policy experience, though um, its energy market and a policy environment are arguably not conducive to its successful implementation potentially affecting the net curve in the opposite direction. It complicates simple path analysis. So this is a more as a comment. So any, uh, would you like to say something to this comment?
3: I'm happy to start it if others want to. Join. Ashley, did you want to
1: go? No, no, please go ahead, join you.
3: Yeah. Uh, hi, Chris. Uh, no, I completely agree, and and I think, um, I mean, the chapter um, that I was talking about, written by um, by Izzading in particular, you know, really talks about this idea of political theater with the implementation of the cap and trade scheme in China. How, uh, as you well know, I mean, it it isn't necessarily the most well-designed approach for a non-market economy, as I mentioned. And so you've actually seen a lot of really interesting um, unintended consequences. And then of course, constant modifications of the the cap and trade, I shouldn't say cap and trade. It's actually not cap and trade, right? There's no cap and minimal trading. So it's, it's really a carbon market with Chinese characteristics, um, you know, and, and uh, really about a sort of tradable um uh performance st- standard, you know, and and you know, but the the chapter actually really looks a lot at the air pollution history of this. And so, you know, I while well, I agree a lot of this came from uh the numerous bilateral engagement happening with the the US and EU at the national and subnational level to try to, I think, encourage China and move in this direction, as well as many NGOs, of course, um, you know, you actually did also see a lot of these internal politics play out with the, you know, MEP or, you know, Um, The former MEP having this experience on emissions trading and then sort of when they were delegated the climate authority, then that kind of moving, you know, becoming higher level policy priority, um, even though there was a lot of discord, you know, within the government about what what made sense um, for Chinese climate policy. So, I, you know, I agree. There's obviously all these complexities. And in this book, we have these sort of in-depth case chapters um, and the, you know, the doing the, the cross case comparative in, in a in very short amount of time it is hard to, to do, I think, you know, to give justice to the diversity.
1: Steve, do you want to respond to that comment? Oh, uh, nothing.
4: I think Joanna's uh, yeah. covered it nicely.
2: I've got one, Mary Alice. Uh, two quick, yeah. yeah, two quick responses. Uh, the first is I totally agree. Uh, These are not simple unidirectional paths. We've seen forward and backward on certain uh, policy areas, and uh, especially in China, we've seen some parts of China go really far and other parts of China go backwards, sort of uh, Steve's earlier, you know, little rubric with these uh, has pollution improved on different metrics um, in different provinces underscores that. Uh, to my thinking, this is another way, another area in which it's very useful to look at the subnational level, um, whether it's at provinces or municipalities. There are uh, provinces and municipalities that are uh, taking cues and using models and using partnerships uh, abroad to move really fast and far, and other places that are uh, not doing that. Um, and so, I think that that is really interesting. Another angle on the same question that I found really interesting that uh, emerged for me in our, in our study of this uh, was not the policy transfer lessons, but the politics transfer lessons um, in which, in my view, the CCP looked at the fact that environmental protests in South Korea and Taiwan merged with pro-democracy protests and contributed to the the successful democratization of those two places. And the CCP, in my view, is not interested in repeating that experience. (laughs) And so would like to follow the LDP successful, getting ahead of these uh, political pressures from the uh, grassroots and from the citizens by moving really fast and far on these environmental issues to reduce that citizen pressure. And in spite of extensive widespread protests and a lot of citizen unrest, uh, the LDP stayed in power and uh, the CCP wants to stay in power too. So the one one way to do that is to really uh, address these questions and I think they are moving fast. And so in my view, it's not just policy lessons that are are transferring, uh, it's also political lessons that are transferring across borders. Mm
0: So Mary Alice since you mentioned this the political issue so I think we should go to this question that uh, uh, about this issue so it All of you, let's see if you have anything uh, more to say. So this question is about uh, from Duncan Nash. Uh, Did the authors, so all of you and your uh, collaborators, attempted to do a comparative analysis of how environmental issues are more or less effectively addressed by different types of political systems? We did hear about the differing constraints and thus approaches of a civil society in different political, cultural contexts but less on the overall governmental and societal responses and the resulting capacity to address various problems. So, Mary Alice, you just touched upon a little bit uh, on this. So, and would you like to say more, all of you?
4: Well, you know, uh, I think I just wanted to say what, reiterate what Ashley said earlier, the the differences are are remarkably small, surprisingly small. When I taught uh, China's environmental, uh, uh, China's environment class, I used to ask the students to write a thought paper on whether socialist or capitalist or that's what we used to say. Now we say democratic and authoritarian, which, of course, isn't quite the same thing. But that's, you know, we slice things differently depending on the discourse in the media, Uh, you know, which was better and and. You know, there's there, there's simply no no way to say. I mean, on the one hand, the authoritarian regime can act more quickly. On the other hand, uh, an authoritarian regime can act more arbitrarily. And how these actually weigh one against the other, you have to look at the empirical cases.
2: I could just uh, follow up quickly on that. Um, this was a, a big question among the um, co-editors, when we were putting the volume together, there was a, there was live conversation among us and among authors that contributed in the conference about whether we could actually measure and come up with a, a, a metric that would determine this. And the answer was that we couldn't. Um, it was really hard to come up with some kind of uniform way of measuring success. Um, and then to try to come up with measuring regime effect on that success. Uh, And so we did try actually, and we're unable to. And so one of the reasons why the volume takes the form that it does is that we found that these uh, case studies and comparative chapters that gave insight into these questions uh, were more useful intellectually than trying to come up with some kind of arbitrary thing um, as a, sort of side note, my uh, own single authored book project, which is called Effective Advocacy, Lessons from East Asia's Environmentalists, which came out in March of this year uh, from MIT, Uh, had this as a core question, not in terms of outcomes, but in terms of uh, advocacy. I went into the project assuming that uh, Japan, which was a democratic state would have a big wide range of effective advocacy techniques and that South Korea and Taiwan would have a sort of more narrow range and that China would have a super, super narrow range. Hmm. And in that project, I found that actually the things that worked, worked uh, everywhere. (laughs) And that that was a surprise to me um, in that project. And it showed up again in this uh, edited volume, which has a lot more variety of cases we see of failures Uh, that show up a lot of places, like uh, the poor indigenous, poor people get shafted all the time, no matter where you are. And rich companies uh, do pretty well, no matter where you are. And that um, is somewhat surprisingly consistent across regime type.
4: If you talk about regime types, a real question in my mind is, uh, what do you say about Brazil?
0: Well, this actually brings bring up our, um, our next question, and I, I hope to persuade you to stay behind for a couple more minutes to, to, because there's so many questions going on here. So the next question is, what is the major differences uh, differences um, between the East Asian eco-developmental state and other develop, developed and developing country that use the quote unquote eco as industrial initiative? Any thoughts on this um, beyond East Asia comparison
1: global comparison? I would just prod Mary Alice uh, to bring out some of her research on this because she's looked you know at exactly this sort of a question with um, uh, a, a large um, content analysis project um, and interviews. So do you want to talk about that Mary Alice comparing East Asia to uh, global trends?
2: Uh, Sure, I guess uh, I alluded to before, I was sort of surprised that there wasn't more variation across the East Asian countries. Um, I was also surprised in my uh, project on advocacy that there wasn't more variation between East Asia and other countries. Uh, There's a sort of idea in the field that uh, East Asian environmental advocates tend to work cooperatively with their government a lot more and protest a lot less. Uh, than people elsewhere. Uh, But my research suggests that not really actually, people everywhere around the world generally do not engage in street protests. They generally don't file lawsuits. um, And when they do, they mostly fail in those efforts. Um, And so uh, a lot of the advocacy techniques that you find in East Asia are also present elsewhere in the world. And so I think one of the things that's exciting for me about this project is that it offers I like to think a uh, kind of hopeful path that even under context where you might not expect pro-environmental policy to emerge, you can uh, see it happen. Um, I think one big difference that we might see in, in eco-developmental states in East Asia versus other states that are calling for green growth or eco this or eco that, uh, is the really critical function of high state capacity you see reasonably high state capacity and relatively close business government relations in all East Asian countries. Um, And that can, as we saw, lead to failures in environmental policy in certain policy areas, but it can lead to pretty rapid uh, success. But if you're looking at countries where you do not have particularly high state capacity or not very functioning uh, civil society sector, you're gonna see, it's gonna be a lot harder to get progress on environmental uh, policymaking. Uh, So I guess that's sort of my perspective on the usefulness of this model uh, elsewhere.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, I'm Mary Alice. Obviously, the person who asked the question or many people in the audience interested same issue should follow up with uh, Mary Alice's research on transcontinental comparison. So here we reach end of our event, but there are several questions we haven't been able to address, including one question directly, uh, 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 which was directed to Joanna in directly relation about a nuclear uh, energy and also there are several other uh, questions. So, uh, all four of you, since you can read the questions, do you have another f- just final words? Anything we you would like to say we haven't been able to say? Just the last two minutes, please share your thoughts here.
3: I actually answered that question in writing, so um, on nuclear. So that should fantastic. be
0: fantastic. Awesome. Yeah, so
1: please. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm delighted by um, this project and how it's gone, and it's been. I felt so incredibly lucky to work with Joanna and Steve and Mary Alice, and I'm going to do something like this again. <laughs> um, I'm getting ready to host my next conference at Banff. This time, we're going to look at uh, renewable energy in East Asia. So, if you've been tuning in today and are uh, interested in contributing to uh, a conference of this type, then maybe who knows, to a subsequent publication, we'll see. Um, I look for my call for papers. It's in in draft right now, and I hope to circulate it soon. Uh, and you know, if you can't participate in person in Banff, um, this will be in late May or early June, uh, then um, maybe you can maybe you can participate virtually. We're going to have both options, so that's something for the radar of uh, scholars in this area out there, as well as for graduate students who might have a paper already or be working on one that could relate to uh, renewable energy in East Asia.
0: Well. If this, we can use that as the uh, the final words to conclude a already very rich, very successful project conducted by all four of you led by Ashley. And now we are hearing about another new awesome project on renewable energy. So as Ashley said, if you're interested in this topic uh, in regard to renewable energy, in regard to East Asia, direct all your questions, send emails to Ashley and to all of our four panelists. With this note, I'm going to say we have a wonderful discussion here. Thank you so much for organizing this wonderful project, the presenting extremely readable extremely insightful book, and I want to quickly mention the research methodology that four of you actually suggested by incorporating scholars from different disciplines, but also inviting activists, scientists from different realms of the world to you know to form and different kinds of diverse conversations i i think this is really the right way the right method to go for the future and especially since um scholarly research environment is getting a little bit tough right now so i would recommend if we have any graduate student online right now listening to this panel you are witnessing a very fruitful uh, outcome of a trans interdisciplinary um, uh, uh, collaboration. This is a really good model. Thank you for sharing your work with us.
4: One more thing, Ling, Uh, thanks again. Uh, Three of the authors, uh, or three of the chapters in our book, uh, all of them happen to be from Taiwan, are are authored by scholar activists, and and two of them indigenous. So uh, scholar and activists should be hopefully a uh, 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 what a um, blurry boundary.
0: Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day. And uh, um, I look forward to talk to all of you uh, very soon in the future again. And our audience, if you're interested in our uh, um, research, our event, please, Check the website of Felbank Center for Chinese Studies. And just quickly remind you, our next event um, at the beginning of the spring semester will be about early China, archaeology, political ecology, the formation of early China. So I will see you then. Have a good day, everybody. Bye. Mm-hmm. Take care.